0: I think it's time to start cycling a bit and and getting more into value more into things that are going to have dividends are going to pay cash over time and have a solid business model and and a solid business in general you can see cracks because what do you do you pave over the cracks with liquidity you pull that back and all of a sudden there's these gaping wounds everywhere It's going to be a political move. It's going to be something that's going to be used by both sides to to jostle into position. And I don't think you want to get in the way of that noise.
1: Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Samuels, and this is another episode of Coffee and Liquidity, the podcast that sits nicely at the intersection of curiosity and business. The American dream can mean so many different things to so many different people. There's no one right answer. There's no one right path forward. But let's talk about ways to set yourself up and your family up for financial freedom in the future. All right, we are live. Coffee and liquidity. We've got the uh, founder and CEO of C6 Capital Holdings, Mark Rosano, joining us. And then, uh, if, you, if you're watching today, you'll also see there's another 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 person in the room here. Uh, the co-host of, of uh, Don't Let the Facts With Me. I don't, Ryan. I never know which way to point. It's. I don't know. It's one of those directions. Ron Ray is joining us uh, today to, uh, to hopefully uh, co-pilot this plane and have a have a great talk or have a great uh, episode here. So, Mark, uh, before we get started, if you would, would uh, do us uh, the favor and just kind of give a quick intro, of who you are, what uh, you know, where you sit, where you're from, and just yeah, uh, you know, a little bit about yourself, and we'll go from there.
0: Sure. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be on and uh, discuss what's going on in the world today. Uh, especially after yesterday's washout, I think there's no shortage of things to talk about, especially on the liquidity side. So, uh, C6 Capital Holdings is something that uh, that I started back in in 2019. We are a private equity company that invests in energy infrastructure. Our view is really taking that basket basket approach to. Electricity, electrical generation, uh, you know, pipelines, uh, different types of technology that is that is addressing the electrification of heat on down, and then we also provide consulting services and insights for clients in terms of things that are happening across the macroeconomic, energy, and uh, and geopolitical world. We have um, I'm the host of Primary Vision uh, Network. Where we have three separate shows: the the EIA show where I look at what what is happening in the energy world, what's happening across refined products and other. Uh, we you know we've been very hot on the NGL topic, uh, LPG, LNG, and then we have the Macro Economy show where we go around the world and look at what are some of the data sets saying, where are leading indicators, current indicators, and then we have the Primary Vision Frac Spread show where we look at local U.S. completions, and then we always love to bring in the geopolitical political uh, mayhem that is in the world today that's, uh, that's hitting everything from supply chains on down to commodities.
1: So, you know, from your seat, I'm curious, uh, I'd love to start by just getting a a macro perspective from you. I I know that uh, a lot of your expertise, like you just mentioned, is in supply chain, supply chain management on on a global scale. Uh, You know, we've seen massive moves, uh, you know, domestically, such as, you know, lumber prices skyrocketed. We've seen massive supply chain uh, roadblocks uh, for, you know, companies looking to get new machines in, etc. I mean, there's been so many different iterations of that. From your seat, what do you think has been sort of some of the strongest narratives there? Talk to me about some of the things that, from your, from your perspective that you've seen there. Is that something, and then also if you can answer, is that something, is the supply chain, you know, where are we currently? Is that something that's on the mend or is are we looking at maybe a new normal as far as that goes? I mean, I know we still have, you know, what, 60 something cargo ships parked in, in the port of Los Angeles. I mean, there seems to be massive issues. Are, are we Is there a way out here or is this a long lead item that that we're sort of just beginning to see that they're all out from.
0: So I, you know, we have to go backwards before we can go forwards. And we have to look at what we've done over the last decade. And it's really moving from the, the, the shift was to an asset light model. So you had companies that were like, look, we're asset light at time deliveries. We have this down to a science. Everything is perfect. We're going to continue to nail this. We don't have to sit on inventory, which is going to cut costs, which is going to make us more efficient, more profitable. And that's all great until it stops working. And this is the, a complete massive when it all stops working at the same time. So the problem now, you know, we're, we're up to now 72 vessels. We've added another 12 over the last uh, two days or so in terms of what is sitting on the West Coast. And we're really at not, we're nowhere near the end of this. And the reason why is typically the summer is a slow period. And then you see that acceleration in August and September, as you start taking down uh, goods for, for Black Friday, for holiday shopping, and you really start taking these deliveries. So we're so far behind that there's just there's it's going to take another year or so just to catch up. Now, how can things how can this be addressed? Well, one you could say, "Well, on the supply side you can catch up because you can make more products, you can go faster." It's like, "Well, you can't because you you physically don't have the containers. You have you don't have anything to put it in." And then you go then you continue to go back down that channel. Then you're like, "All right, well, Look at Myanmar, and then what that's what that's doing to tin. You look at uh, Guyana, and what what is that doing to? bauxite and how that impacts aluminum. And then you look at, at the chips, which is, I think, the biggest um, issue at this point. It's something as simple as the substrate. And the substrate is a low margin, essentially the silica that is attached to it, that is the problem. So when you start looking at all of these things on the supply side, there's so many problems that's going to keep that uh, essentially a uh, captive, especially because we have so low inventory, companies have to buy. So then you go to the other side, and you say, well, you can cut the demand response, where the consumer can essentially say, look, I can't afford these prices, I have, I, I'm going to have to pull back, I'm going to have to reduce, or I'm going to have to find an alternative because the issues are so broad hitting everything from Gatorade to semiconductors to raw materials there there's no easy way out of this outside of just a slow grind to catch up and when you look at just what's happening in the US with the trucker shortage with the lack of individuals just to move stuff you're just this is not something that's going away tomorrow and it's going to take for i would say another at this point, six to twelve months, and I would say closer to twelve months before we get to any any kind of real normalcy that we have seen over the last, um, you know, let's call it three years.
2: Have we learned our
0: lesson, or can we expect this to happen again? I think we've learned our lesson, and, and you're starting to see people adjust supply chains a bit more, and and the. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at China and you look at the Yangtze River Basin last year and how you had this massive flooding taking down many different industrial complexes, you know, really starting to create these hiccups. And then you look back to 2011 with the, uh, the tidal wave that, that decimated the semiconductors once before, which is why Japan was actually in a much better position. So if you look at Toyota, Toyota had a lot of things that had been uh, stored. But even they started, they've they've now run out of their excess and they're starting to become uh, become a bigger issue. So I think you're going to start to see more of that uh, Japanese model. And then when you look at just some of the rhetoric between China and Australia, China and the US, I think there's going to be some concerns and you're going to want some of that buffer especially if you get if you see this rhetoric continue to get worse and and possibly make things uh, you know, a bit more tenuous. And that's going to create more need to have that storage in the backdrop how,
1: how much of an effect on uh, the global supply chain from a, I guess, from a domestic point of view, d- does China really have, I mean, are they... Where are they in terms of the power structure? I know last year that they, they went a massive buying spree of crude and, and a number of other commodities. Um, are they really in the driver's seat? What what is sort of the macro level macro perspective look like on a global
0: scale? So they they were very much in the driver's seat. They they wanted to try to take down a lot of capacity. They they were concerned. So if you take that into, into three key defensive areas, so we'll start with microchips and semiconductors. So when you look at you had Huawei uh, with with the U.S. You know we were starting to put sanctions on what they could buy, so they essentially looked at this and said, "Look, we need to get in front of this because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what Taiwan's going to do." So they went out and started to buy fairly aggressive on the semiconductor side. Now, they do have a a life expectancy when they're not in a unit. And they're not getting continuous power through it. So, even though they were buying ahead of it, you have to use them within an eighteen to twenty-four month period, depending on how you're keeping and maintaining those the integrity of the chip. So then you look at at, at crude, and you look at the other um, you know uh, commodities in general, and they were trying to be ad, you know, take advantage of where things were, take advantage of pricing. To try to, you know, again, store up and create some of this buffer. But now that we're coming to the other side of that, there they they essentially did everything, um, I don't want to say wrong, but they've been very hesitant to release a lot of these things that were going into semi-private, semi-state-owned, not really sure what bucket to put it under. And now they're finally starting to release some of this capacity because when you look at PPI being producer price index and CPI, which is consumer price index, The PPI in China is is off the charts, and the CPI has been fairly flat. And that's because China has been trying to export a lot of that price, push that into the international market, and, and try to drum up local consumption. But that's the biggest issue at this point. They have very damaged local consumption. And that's one of the biggest things of that dual circulation strategy, common prosperity, trying to drum up that local piece. because. If you continue to see China and the U.S., uh, you know, hit on, you know, butt heads and whatnot, China has been trying to take away the importance of some of these exports, and at the same time, replace the U.S., which is just the largest buyer of Chinese stuff. So what do you need to do? So you know when you look at exports exports you know initially used to make up about 25 27% of China's GDP it's now between 15 and 17%. So they've done a good job of trying to take this down but it's also the it's just the law of big numbers. They the it's the second largest economy in the world so they they want to drum up consumption to become a bigger part of their GDP calculation and rely a bit less on foreign investment and some of these exports that are coming under more scrutiny with trade deals, trade wars, and uh, that geopolitical rhetoric.
1: I wanted to take a quick break. Hope you're enjoying the show. If you're looking for your own fast and reliable dedicated server, or maybe a domain at a fantastic price, hosting services, security, managed WordPress, whole range of innovations, Namecheap.com. It was started in 2000 with a mission to deliver the best domains at the best prices with the best service. And they have gone ahead and done that through and through over the last twenty years. Go ahead and check it out. Alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. One more time. Alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. A L D E R A A N V E N T U R E S scom backslash affiliate dash partners. Namecheap.com. Check it out. What's your take on the, the recent crackdown coming from China in regards to their, their domestic tech uh, companies? I mean, they, they have really started to batten the hatches. Where is that coming from? What's the ultimate goal in your, in your mind uh, for, for that movement?
0: So it comes down to price. And one of the big things is that they've been trying to do. So Dang, you have to go back to what Dang said. Dang's whole thing was let some get rich. And it was the idea of letting the capitalism work, you know, incentivizing people to create, invent. And now the new mantra is, you've gotten rich, now it's time to pay back. And when you look at where things are going, they, they have aggressively gone after the cost of living. When you look at private tutoring, when you look now at at, um, at uh, Yurong and, and what happens with Evergrande, they're going after housing prices, they're trying to bring some of this down. So you're starting to see this, 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 this knock-on effect and tech has been something where they're trying to protect the consumer. And at the same time, they're trying to raid the kitty a little bit. I mean, these guys made a lot of money and they want to redistribute some of that to uh, individuals to help them purchase, to help them do things, to move that uh, move that through, and again trying to drive that dual circulation strategy, but now under common prosperity and the tech guys to to show that they're good citizens have said, oh, we're going to donate nine hundred million um Ramin-B to you know this sector. We're going to do this because they're trying to show that they're giving back and they're being good sports on the whole. Um, Shift to support local consumption.
2: How fragile is the Chinese economy? And then can it survive independent
0: of what the U.S. um, trades with them? So it it is a, a, it's funny because it is actually a very fragile economy. And the reason why it's fragile is because there's so much leverage in it. And when you look at the knock on effect, so if you take Evergrande for an example, so Evergrande has about $300 billion in yeah, uh, you know, u s. dollars in exposure. But when you look outside of of China, you know it's it's fairly small in comparison. but it's the loss of confidence because when you look at you know evergrand being three percent of Chinese GDP, but then you look at that whole sector being twenty three to twenty five percent of China's GDP, that then becomes a real number. Then, you look at how they carry themselves and you look at the issuance of perpetual bonds. So if bank A lent to, to Evergrande, then bank A turned around and issued perpetual bonds. And those perpetual bonds were bought by banks uh, B. And then bank B issued perpetual bonds, which were then bought by bank A and then bank C bought them. So all of a sudden you get this, this essentially this, this circular movement where everybody has exponential leverage to the other individual, making this a any loss of confidence would reverberate through the system. And at the same time, it's not just the banks that are at risk because they did these they have these structures through MVPs where they actually uh, allow re, uh, essentially retail investors to invest and and act as almost like a REIT. So not only do you have the banking connection, but you also have the retail side how much retail dollars came in that are going to have to be made whole. And then you look at what Evergrande was doing, they were borrowing from, from their you know, employees at 80%. You know, how many times has that happened? You know, and that's where you continue to see this, the essentially how it could be this contagion that goes all the way through. You know, Is this a Lehman event? I, I honestly don't know. If you asked me in 07, 08, I would have said it was going to be Bear Stearns that took everything down not Lehman. I mean, being in the industry, it was no surprise when Lehman went under, I, but it had that knock-on of that loss of confidence. And so is this going to give way to something bigger? Because now as the as China tries to pull back on the retail sector, they start to to all of a sudden pull away this liquidity. And when you pull away liquidity, you can see cracks. Because what do you do? You pave over the cracks with liquidity, you pull that back, and all of a sudden, there's these gaping wounds everywhere that become, I think, uh, more precedent to, uh, to to where people are going to invest and the issues in the economy. Okay. Uh, you,
2: you've talked about Taiwan for as long as I've known you and kind of what's going on there. Um, maybe give a 30-second refresher on the importance of Taiwan, A. Uh, and then B, it's not quite clear to me – there's a lot of talk now about whether or not China will attack Taiwan – going back to kind of follow up of the can they can they survive that the us can what happens if china does actually pull on an assault on taiwan what would happen to the global economy and how would that impact china,
0: the chinese economy you know we import about 488 billion dollars worth of goods from china and that's just directly from China. That's not including what we inv- what we uh, import from Japan. That you know, segments comes from semi finished goods go to Japan, then get completed, then come to us. So there's there's huge essentially knock on effect of how much, which is why they President Xi has really wanted to drum up that local consumption, try to replace the largest buyer in the world, which is the U.S. So Taiwan is important from. From two perspectives. So let's just t- start with the economic one, then we can talk about the geopolitical one. So the economic one is they have a significant uh, foundry backdrop. They have a lot of IP. They have a lot of capacity. When you look at chips, semiconductors, advanced technology, advanced chips, you know, and I'm talking like the very small nanometers in terms of just the capacity that they have, and then they have U.S. technology. You know, we've invested in them. We've given them a lot of things. China would love to get their hands on and really you know try to use this to to fill a huge gaping void that China has been trying to invest in and replace but it's very difficult to invent things i mean especially when you think about how long it takes to invent it test it build it get you know source it so this would be a nice little stopgap now on the geopolitical side it's still a black eye. It's still the people that that escaped during the, um, the the rise of communism. When you look at Mao and and in the 1950s, and when you look at per uh, per capita GDP, they they're much stronger. You know why did they advance? Why are they in the position that they're in? And China is only starting to get to this point. So it's like, this, is this showing that capitalism works versus what you have? Is, so there's also some of that behind it. Now when we talk about what China invade. It's it's very difficult because it's not like you can just carpet bomb, soften everything up, and just walk in. Because you need those assets. Like the whole point of going in is to get those assets. So it would have to be very strategic. And we've given them harpoon missiles, which are highly accurate and devastating. If you were if you were coming at them and they've hardened a lot of positions because Taiwan is very mountainous there's there's only certain places you can land and so i think right now it's a lot of saber rattling and not something that would actually come to fruition at this time
1: so i think uh, sort of tangential to that or i think there's uh, you know, in my mind there's a lot of linkage uh, you know africa for the sake of some nuance has basically made africa their playground they've dumped an incredible amount of money in there and they they have continued to to set You know, set foot there. Is that something that you see as a strategic move that the U.S. should be more active in trying to to combat to a degree? Uh, You know, is that something? Is that what do you think about that um, strategically from the again global macro? Mm -hmm. You know, what should the U.S. be doing in response? What is China? looking to do with that move? Talk me through that a little bit. Sure.
0: So one of the big things was the Belt and Road Initiative. And it it, it was initially called the One Belt, One Road, which then got rebranded. And when you look at what they're trying to do, they're trying to vertically integrate. So their whole idea was, okay, let's, let's, look at what we have within China and where are we missing? you know, where do we have lithium? Where do we have cobalt? Where do we have gold, copper, fish, you know, grains? And they went out and tried to to essentially plug a lot of these shortfalls. and they did that by going out and and providing teaser rates and giving cheap debt with the idea that I'm going to give you you know let's 2% debt on this one and that will be tranche 1 but then but then by the time you get to tranche 4 well you need me i and i need you but you need me way more so that next tranche is going to be 12% and oh by the way if you take my money you can only in, you can only buy these goods from chinese companies you can only hire uh chinese workers and you have to have a certain percentage that that is at play so when you look at what they were trying to do, they wanted to limit their exposure and their risk to relying on the US, on Europe. They wanted to go in and source a lot of these goods on, on their own, whether it be raw materials, semi-finished goods. But at the same time, they have a population problem and they were looking to export some of that labor force. They were looking to export some of these goods that had been piling up and this became a very natural place to do it. So now fast forward after doing this for the last 10 years, and you have very poor investment. You have countries that resent them, are angry at what's going on. They've been, they've, you know, essentially uh, scorched earth type things where they're not partners. They feel is more... More along the lines of, uh, you know, they're just coming and taking, adding nothing to the local economy, and I think this is where the U.S. can step in and say, "Hey, look, we're going to be partners with you. We're going to help you through this, but we we need to find ways to solidify our own supply chains because we have ignored supply chains for so long because we have exported inflation, we've exported our supply chain, we've offshored everything, and now, now I'm not saying we have to onshore everything, but we need to have a certain balance. And we need partners to do that. And I think you're starting to get that realization and a bit more of an aggressive move with some of these new trade deals coming out, some of these new negotiations coming out to try to create that Indo-Pacific connection. And I think Africa is going to be a big piece of that going forward.
1: Ryan, I know that you uh, you know, just came off the heels of, a, of an event over the weekend in, in Houston. Uh, uh, forget which country in Africa or which nation Africa uh, was represented there. Um, but you know, and you're obviously uh, involved in both the China Africa, I guess all three of China Africa and the domestic market. What are you seeing from your seat in sort of the tenor of those conversations over the last couple of years? What what, what do you think is sort of where are we right now?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's always hard to determine what people think in those rooms, right? So they have a, they're incentivized to tell me that they want to work with us and not the Chinese, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the incentive. And so we talked to some China watchers, they would argue that the, that the African delegations are, play, are playing to their American audience because some of these elite are making woohoo dollars on these deals that Mark's talking about, but the average person is not making anything, right? So are they really incentivized to leave China when they come to the US? But I was at an event a few months ago and one of the representatives come out point blank and he said, if the U.S. wants to compete with China, then they've got to do it the Chinese way more or less. And so if you think about what all that means, that's a lot of changing of U.S. regulation, how we handle taxes, how we handle forward investment, your ability to invest in foreign projects. I thought that was kind of a, an interesting and probably a more honest way to do it. As far as economic rebound goes, I think that, you know, they're probably portraying the picture um, about what happened to them during COVID a lot more generously, generously than I would, you know, because they don't have the resources that our population does. You know, if we don't work, if we got to sit home for a couple of weeks, we have a little bit of money in the bank. Their populations um, across Africa just don't have that extra that extra dollars. And you've seen that with some protests and some uh, We even talk coup. <laughs> you've know, so you, you kind of seen that in Africa, that they were, that how they viewed some of these lockdowns and shutdowns was not as charitable as, as and more population
0: was. Well, and, and off that, I mean, one of the things that I, like I've written about and, and talked about is when you look at food, when you look at water, and you look at these shortages, and, and now that we're coming into a raising rate cycle as inflation really starts to bite, emerging markets don't have the running room, they don't have that capacity. So now in order to get in front of that inflation in front of that you know shortage they what do they do they start raising rates and and they try to start buying US dollars and they start buying treasuries to provide some of that backstop to to protect their uh, their currency. And and if you look at the competition that the US has and what China offers, you know it, it's a lot of things that we could do. And just coming back to the name of the game with coffee and liquidity, when you look at the liquidity side, if we offer up, hey, if you come into our sphere of influence, we're going to open up a Fed swap with you. So it's going to be much easier and cheaper to get US dollars. And let's be fair. Do you want US dollars or do you want Yuan? Do you want Ramimbi? Do you want to live in our universe or theirs? of global trade takes place in US dollars, and I'm going to give you the access you need. So I, I think we really have to play up some of, hey, you can use our swifts, our sweeps, our banks, our companies, and then I think you can build off of that. And then you look at what China's done on the fishing side. When you look at how many times they've been sanctioned, they're overfishing off of the coast of Africa. When you look at the way that they've treated some of the locals, they're they're they they are looking for a change. But again, they they've already been, you know, twice bitten or what once bitten, twice shy type situation. And, they, and I think they're gonna need more disclosure. And I think the US does have that to offer, but we have to play ball, especially on the liquidity side and the access the dollars
1: at the at the fund level so speaking directly to you know to like you guys C6 I mean, what is sort of the investment thesis what are some of the takeaways of maybe areas of opportunity uh on in the domestic markets that that you know you may be looking at uh you know putting money into What's sort of some of the takeaways from this that you know people domestically can can uh, can make moves to address
0: well, one of the big things that we, we identified a couple of years ago was was how aggressive the shift was when you look at the energy infrastructure and you look at our grid and, and how fragile our grid is, how we continue to take base load capacity, which is something that's running 24-7, that's making up this, this base component where you're, you're taking nuclear off, you're taking coal off, and then you're replacing it with uh, renewables. And then in order to call that base load, you're plugging these essentially natural gas peakers which come online whenever they need to but they have what's called interruptible contracts which just means that they can be interrupted because you're not firm takeaway you're only being you're only buying as needed so when you start looking at, at the softness that's being created on the supply side, while we're asking the grid to do more, we're asked, we, we want to electrify heating, we want EVs, we want charging stations, you know, everybody has a phone or some sort of device that's plugged in at any given time to charge. And, and all of a sudden, you're getting this bigger sucking sound on the system. But we do have a green mandate we do have a carbon capture uh, a carbon view and we're trying to address it so our view was well let's look at this like how much how, how much hydroelectricity in the us is available well 65% of it is owned by mom and pops well what's is that an opportunity can we buy some of these high grade them upgrade them increase their their efficiency sell that back to the grid on a base load capacity and trying to uh, to look at it from that perspective. And then at the same time, looking at solar, looking at wind. You know, I I lived and worked in the Middle East and, and Mazdar City. I, I can tell you where why solar works and why it doesn't. You know, if people ignore. Soil content, soil content is very important because clay adheres to the surface of these of uh, solar panels. So the, how, but then at the every six feet you come off the ground, you reduce the amount of soil of uh, of uh, loss of efficiency from clay. But then you look at wind. Okay, well, how does wind blow? Where is it going to blow? How how does it blow in extremes? Because let's be fair, nobody dies when it's 65 sunny with a 15 mile an hour wind. That's just not how this works. People die when it's zero degrees, and you have to turn off your wind turbine because the wind is howling, and you—they would rip themselves to pieces. Or at a hundred degrees, when the wind isn't blowing because there's so much heat, and you—and and so all of a sudden you get this this drop. And we really need to understand the extremes and ways to look at that. So. Then that's looking at different technologies like carbon capture, blue hydrogen. What is the likelihood of blue hydrogen as a means of making sense? You know, moving it through our existing uh, facilities, because hydrogen does make metal brittle once it goes past a certain percentage of what's in the pipe. So managing that is, is there? Are there uh, coatings that we can do? Is there ways that we can do that? But at the same time we'll invest in lng and lpg you know th- this is a it's a basket approach it is not we're all green or we're all fossil fuels it's like hey guys let's meet in the middle Let's figure out where solar works, where wind works, where coal works. Can we have carbon caps that we can use? Can we have natural gas that we can use? And and let's have a serious conversation because I don't think anybody wants people to get decimated in terms of dying. But at the same time, if you increase prices, it's the poor that are, in, that are impacted from a heating side, from an electricity side. You know, People that are sitting there, they'll mumble and be angry that they're paying their, their electricity bills an extra $100 a month. For some people, that $100 a month is going to change the way you buy food. That's going to change the, you know, how many diapers you can purchase, how, many, you know, how much meat you can buy. Like, that's a big issue that I, I think is missed in the bigger conversation.
1: No, I, th- I think you're exactly right. Um, what uh, so I mentioned, I guess at the very uh, top of the show, uh, you know, we've seen lumber prices, uh, you know, they, they skyrocketed. They've obviously come down now. Uh, housing market still seems to be in a runaway market domestically. What do you, what is your, your perspective on? You know, Ryan and I have talked in a couple of other episodes on other shows uh, about you know that, that there the other foot has to drop in terms of liquidity in the market. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do you think that that's uh, the response to that is? A rise in interest rates do you think that we're looking at a a market bubble do you uh, you know or is, is this you know is the requisite increase in commodity prices etc simply tied to inflation and if we can reverse that trend then we can kind of come back to an equilibrium uh, how, how how grave is the situation that we're in right now all right folks appreciate you listening in appreciate the support appreciate you being with me let's talk about tossable digits. One of our affiliate partners with Alderon Ventures is Tossable Digits. It's similar to a Google Voice, except that times 10. Now, you can use it for anything, sales, ad tracking, workflow, real estate, any sort of follow-up you need, phone calls, text messaging. The kicker here, though, Tossable Digits allows you to get a local number in up to 60 different countries. There's no contracts anytime, cancel anytime. It's a fantastic platform, super easy to use. You got to check it out. Tossable digits. Learn more about it, AlderonVentures.com, backslash affiliate dash partners. One more time, that is AlderonVentures.com, backslash affiliate dash partners. dot S.com, backslash affiliate dash partners. And now let's get you back to the show.
0: Right, and I, so it's the everything bubble. So if you if everything is in a bubble, or are you in a bubble? Is type the you know the running joke of of where it is, and and that's the so when you look at lumber, and and this is this is why I love commodities because there's so many nuances within it. Because when you look at the lumber side, there were trees. Like when you look at the people that own the trees, they're like, "Hey guys, come and get it. Like it's right here." It's coming. I'll sell it to you. But the issue was you had a trucking shortage, you were taking sawmills down. And when you and COVID hit, people underestimated the the demand response. So when they took these sawmills down, and then as they started to bring them back up, they did it very slowly. And that all of a sudden created the shortfall. Then you had a trucking, ma- a massive trucking shortage. So then you couldn't even get it from the sawmill to the lumber yard, to the housing projects. Then you, then once you did fix that, well, it wasn't enough. So then you started, uh, you had to rely on rail, and then railroad um, lumber moving cars have been, are now sold out for the next eighteen months. And so you had this, this essentially clearing aspect of it. But then when you look at the housing side. You know, and what the Fed is doing. So the Fed is still buying 40 billion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities, even though when you look at housing prices, what are you supporting at this point? Like this is absurd. And when you look at the what's called the reserve repo purchases, so when I was on the the money market desk, I was in middle office operations and this was oh seven, oh eight time period, and we were we were supposed to invest all of these uh, sweep vehicles in your money market account coming to, to us. And then we would invest in the overnight market. And the overnight, and for those that don't, that don't know what that is, if Morgan Stanley is long $8 billion and JP Morgan is short $8 billion, there's an agreement that they will make a trade and in the overnight, and then you will have the cash that you need to close out the day and you'll charge a nominal fee for that, whether it be- you know 15 15 basis points 25 basis points so now with what the fed has done they've created so much excess in the system and so much slack they've opened up their own rrp where now we're up to about 1.1 to 1.2 trillion dollars going in every single night because there's so much liquidity so now, when you have so much liquidity sloshing around, it's just going from the bank balance sheet to the Fed balance sheet and back, and it's just and it's not actually cycling through the system. So, what do people do? People look at this and say, "Oh, well, it's inflation, so I have to go out and buy stuff, and and that'll protect against uh, the the this this coming tide," which is still true. It's just, you have to look at the underlying supply demand statistics and and drivers of the, the industry. Because when you look at natural gas, natural gas prices really have nothing to do with the amount of liquidity in the balance sheet. It's the fact that we underinvested, so we don't have enough natural gas. We have LNG going off at six MTPA a month. You know, you you've increased residential and and uh, and commercial uses of of natural gas. So now all of a sudden, we're at the lows that uh, in storage that we haven't been at since 2014 and 2018 but it is very different this time. We don't have this huge demand response. We don't have this huge uh, uh, side of what we can do within the US while we're exporting more LNG. Just like lumber, you had this, this response, but then at the same time, There's an inventory problem because on the lumber side, now you have the lumber yards that bought at X and the price moved to Y. And the guy who's going to buy it is like, hey, whoa, why are you charging me that? So then it becomes an inventory problem because who's going to eat the price? And that's where we're seeing that now in iron ore again, when you look at what China has been doing with cutting back on iron ore and steel. So you see these different pieces. But overall, and this comes back to what we've tried to do at at C6, we think we are in an inflationary stagflation style. So we want to own the asset that is a cash flowing asset because even if the cash gets diminished over time with when you factor in inflation you still have that hard asset because there is going to be that support because there is that inflationary pressure so you're going to see this kind of backdrop working through the system while the fed keeps pumping 120 billion dollars into the market blindly which should be cut it uh, cut within the next uh you know two months if you will
2: yeah. So I've been
0: thinking a lot about what the retail investor should be doing. You know, the the
2: non-accredited investor who doesn't have maybe opportunities. Um, you know, last year was like the year of Robin Hood. <laughs> you know, everyone everyone's sitting at home making trades and allegedly making millions of dollars. Right now, when you look at the stock market, um, I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, that's where a lot of people tend to put their money at. What's your sentiment for those who are, you know, they're, they're not looking to, they can't invest, maybe private placement deals, um, but they're, they're going, okay, I need to put my money somewhere. Um, you said hard assets, but they can't get access to hard assets. Where
0: should they go? So one of the things that, you know, we, we've had a great run. Uh, hopefully you caught it. But is if you're using margin, don't and start pulling back on that margin level. Because when you look at the stock market, the stock market will go up, there's there's going to be opportunities. But at the same time, I think you want to cycle out of growth and into value. And, and, and I really think there's this dichotomy right now where every day the NASDAQ goes up, every day the Russell goes down. Like If you were to say 99 out of 100 times, what's going up? It's like, well, the NASDAQ's still going up, but the Russell's not. I think it's time to start cycling a bit and, and getting more into value, more into things that are going to have dividends, are going to pay cash over time, and have a solid business model and a, and a solid business in general. And start pulling back on some of this leverage that's being used. Because at the same time, you may love this position, you may have faith in it, but if you're a hundred times levered or you know, 10 times levered, depending on what you're using, well, if the market goes down, they're gonna they're gonna sell you in because they have no like you're either you have to post collateral or they're gonna go get your collateral and it's just gonna be selling your assets and you never wanna have to force sell. So I would be de-risking, I would be de-grossing in general and looking for that safer move that's going to have a bit more longevity over the uh, the next cycle because i just think that growth is going to you're going to see multiple compression which just means that values are just going to come back down to earth and i wouldn't want to be uh, in front of that if you will as things go on and you know coming that coming back full circle with what the fed has been doing you know, the Fed has been trying to buy just above what the Treasury has been issuing to with rates. And for me, the easiest way to fix this is you raise rates. That's what we need to do. But you can't really raise rates before you stop QE. So you, we need to uh, more aggressively go after this QE. I think they come after MBS or mortgage-backed securities first. Try to give the Treasury a little bit more running room by buying their $60, right. 80000000000000 trillion uh, billion dollars a month and and I think that's what you need to see it's just if I'm a retail investor and I'm looking at this, I think you have to be very concerned on the debt ceiling and what is going to happen. It's going to be a political move. It's going to be something that's going to be used by both sides to to jostle into position. And I don't think you want to get in the way of that noise. And if you've made some great money, I think it's time to take some of those chips off the table.
1: So I know that Ryan uh, likes to talk about uh, starting a business uh, that, that takes little effort, and makes a ton of money. Uh, how would you... NFTs? Him, oh, I think that's NFTs. Yes, I'm, yes. Also, also, yes. No, but what I was what I was going to say, Mark, is give give, give Ryan uh, your your commentary or, or advice on like if he wanted to go re-engineer, like the Adam Newman WeWork story. How, how how does how does he go do that? So,
2: or, so the WeWork story. How to get the Fed to wire some of that money to my account at night.
0: <laughs> well, I I keep saying like I I can give this talk to to all the C suite guys and and if you know three point five trillion in in, uh, in a deal I'll take my ten percent fee I I'm not greedy I don't need a lot of that money Thank just ten percent ten percent
1: so Mark, that that was that was a little bit too close to home for Ryan you're you're sort of you're <laughs> speaking his language now. now now I see where he gets it.
0: <laughs> So th- I, I think there there is a lot of opportunity and, and unfortunately, you know, we've been so scared to let the business cycle work and rebirth really kind of cycle its way through. If, you know, we have so many zombie companies, we have so many companies that are just living on debt, cycling that debt just to stay alive. We need to purge the system because you, you're essentially pur- having good capital go after bad companies because they have to be invested they have to try to find yield you know this is I think it's uh, is one of the worst years in 25 years for uh, states borrowing to pay their pension liabilities because the pension funds are are one they they have an issue with people paying in but they've promised this growth that is just unattainable at a fed funds rate of 25 basis points so you have this good money going after bad, and I and and now at the same time you could say, well, that's why you can't let things go bankrupt because then it will expose how how naked the pension funds are, which is its whole can of worms. But realistically, there is there are a lot of innovative people. You know, like the one thing I always love to to joke about the U.S. What do we do? What do we do in the U.S. But invent things in arbitrage. And whenever you go into this cycle, I think we really need to open up and let this go through. If you have a great idea, you're overlevered. We were a country built for failure. We, it's okay to fail in this country. It's, if you fail there is a safety net. There you go to chapter 11 or you go to chapter seven. You go to chapter 11, you have a good idea, you relever, you get people to buy in, you get loans, you equitize some of that debt and boom, you're coming out on the other side and you hit the ground running or you go into chapter seven like, hey guys, nice try, didn't work, market doesn't like it, see you next year and those assets get liquidated and then people that took the risk because yes, it's a thing called risk, it's okay to take it but stop, Backstopping it, and you you invested a hundred dollars, and you got eighty seven back. Move on and try to get make it make up that thirteen dollars that you lost somewhere else by investing something different. And and I think we need to get back into this cycle and let the business cycle go through purge some of the 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 old purge some of the bad ideas and foster some of the new ones.
1: So I know that uh, you know over the last eighteen months uh, it seems like there had been an unprecedented amount of liquidity and capital from private equity being uh, being funneled into the residential home market uh, and residential real estate. Um, what, do you, what are some of the, the other markets, that you may see areas of opportunity going forward, where we may, may see private equity entering a space that, you know, at current, they really don't have to see that yet?
0: I think you're going to see them uh, getting bigger and bigger into some of this power gen, and and I know you've seen it already when you look at New Energy Finance, uh, New Fortress Energy, when you look at how they're trying to go after it. I think you're going to start to see more of that. The problem is it takes bigger checks. Like I'm I'm we're only trying to raise 30 million to show who we are, how we're doing, and then get bigger from there. Where those are checks that are much bigger, but there there's longevity to it. There's there's a lot of opportunity. Especially when you look at places like Vietnam and place and and essentially getting away from China and trying to delever from China, but find other opportunities. So I, I think you're still going to find that hard asset side where people like housing because there's cash flow. I own the asset; it has a value. I think you're going to continue to see that. It's just you're gonna. I. The pendulum has swung too far on the green side, and I think you're gonna you're starting to see that swing back now, and and I and there's gonna be that balance approach, and and I think you that's gonna be kind of that next foray into I think what comes next, and it's gonna be hard assets moving stuff from point A to point B, and uh, and and trying to make that more efficient again. Yeah, one more question on energy. I think I'm trying to read this report from the Oxford Institute for
2: Energy Studies, and it seems that they're arguing that the Russian uh, gas ability to export gas is, is kind of peak, like they can't meet the demand. Uh, when we look at what's going on in the U.S., we have the midterms about a year out. Um, we have the big publicly traded oil and gas companies. Um, but is there a sweet spot for the privately held oil and gas companies um, to to invest there if you are the accredited investor? Because these prices are high right now. Or sh- so should you be putting your money there or do you think, no, 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 we're, we're due for a, a massive
0: reset on prices? So I, I think that you want to put your money there, but you have to be very careful on where you're putting your money. And the reason why I say that is I, I, one of the things that I, I've been bullish on, and I was, I was actually on Alex's steel, sh- uh, Alex Steele's show talking about this is natural gas and natural gas liquids. I think the liquid side is going to be very prolific, is going to see a lot of pricing, uh, movements to the upside. And I want to have that exposure because there's going to be that growing. uh, uh, that growth on propane. When you look at plastics, especially when you look at the green movement, plastic demand is going to be there. You're going to continue to see, you know, when you look at propane LPG demand recovered almost overnight. When you look at India, China, a lot of these Asian nations, even the emerging markets, as they came out of uh, covid or at least their initial you know shock of covid and and i think that is a very a much easier way if you will to address some of these carbon issues is to take away coal take away high sulfur fuel oil and replace it with lpg lng so i think that that is going to be a a very good place to invest over the next 5 10 years not to say that oil isn't similar it's just i i think that there there's a lot of <laughs> gas and natural gas liquids that has been very unloved for the last, I, I mean, can we go back 20 years at this point to, to uh, at least it feels like that as, as a beaten gas bowl, uh, of of something where I think there's going to be some of that opportunity going forward that uh, you, can, you can snap up and you don't have to worry about some of the same issues that you have at the bigger um, uh, public side.
1: So when the uh, when refineries were getting built uh, domestically, we were, we were in a market where the U.S. Um, could not supply an, uh, you know the demand domestically, and so those refineries were built axiomatically to have to accept uh, foreign crude, for, uh, foreign LNG, etc., and refine that. Uh, we are, do you think that we are moving, irrespective of some of the ESG and, and some of the current political climate? Do you think that we're moving towards a scenario where we will be able to bring that into equilibrium and? Uh, you know, build out refinery capacity to to refine you know the the WTI's and, and the domestic domestic crude, or, or are we going to continue to have to buy foreign crude in order for simply to, to blend and, and supply the market?
0: So because of the way things were built and just to give some clarity on on that, on crude quality, which has always been one of my favorite topics. When you look at what was built in, in Pad 3 or the Gulf of Mexico, the cheapest crude was the stuff nobody wanted, which was this heavy, sour, crude. So what does that take? That takes more processing. It takes coking capacity. It takes different uh, specific uh, catalytic co- uh, cokers and, uh, and FCCs when you look at that fluid uh, catalytic cracking. So what do you want to do? You you take this heavy crude, you run it through, but you can make a very big suite of products that is advantageous because you can adjust things specifically within reason to create what you would like. So when you when you shift now to what you're talking about, where the, sh- the shale revolution and what has come out, it, it really doesn't pay to build new refiners in the United States. Because right now, if globally, there's about 3 million barrels a day of, two, of we're still there's three were oh, three, three million barrels a day oversupplied of refining capacity. So now, when you look at what the U.S. refiners have done, they've they've essentially said, "Look, I'm not going to build a new refiner, but I'll add a process, which could be a new alkylation unit, a new hydrocrack, uh hydro treating unit, a new reformate uh, unit, which is just creating re- uh, reformate or reformer to create reformate that goes into gasoline." and trying to keep the coker heavy because when you look at a coker a coker has to stay on a heavier slate which means that you can really max out only about 40 to 45% light sweet and you can never go 50-50 or so what what do you do you take that that light sweet and you run it through a different process and you run that through so They've, they've essentially optimized and not really rebuilt or built new. And that's what I think you're going to continue to see. Now, speaking of some of the pendulum swinging again, you, know, you have some facilities that have gone down and are now converting to biodiesel or some sort of renewable fuel. And when you look at where this is happening and where a lot of this new capacity is being built, which is the Middle East and Asia, I think you're going to start to see the US importing a bit more of those refined products instead of making them at home as we continue to see some of these refiners shut down because it doesn't make sense of you either have to high grade them, upgrade them, build new, or does it make sense to import from abroad? And and I think uh, more and more it's becoming advantageous to import from abroad. And then I guess rounding that out, when you look at a PSX Alliance, that's an example. Like PSX Alliance is like, look, it's going to cost too much to fix this. I don't think it makes sense after Hurricane Ida to fix this unit. So somebody might come in because it's very hard to get a license. So they might want to come in and say, look, I, I'll i buy it. I'll fix it. but. Right now, PSX is like, look, guys, I- I'm going to shut it down at this point. Uh, that's fantastic, Mark.
1: Really appreciate the time today. We're, we're running a little bit long, so want to go ahead and uh, uh, sign off here and, and get us out of here. Uh, before we do, though, uh, if you could... Uh you know, follow up and just tell people where they can find you if they want to learn more about C6 or, or uh, just uh, reach out to you about anything that we talked about today?
0: Sure. Uh, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, my my Twitter handle is at MarkFNY. I'm always happy to go back and forth. Or you can reach me on my email, which is MRasano at C6CapitalHoldings.com.
1: Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate you jumping thank in the captain's or the co-captain's chair here. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Ryan, uh, Ryan, and I only get a chance to go on air like once a week now because you know he, he doesn't like me as much as he used to. But that's uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. All right. Well, uh, you know, Mark, really appreciate the conversation. Uh, looking forward to uh, to maybe another episode here uh, in a few months and getting a follow up on some of this uh, that we talked about. But uh, for now, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Well, thank you for having me. All right. And that is a wrap. I am your host, Ben Samuels. This has been another episode of Coffee and Liquidity. Appreciate the support. Appreciate you guys showing up. Go ahead and check out alderonventures.com for more information about what we've got going on and future episode releases. Thanks, guys.